We are at the end of our series, The Pursuit. Has this been a good series for you guys, man? It has been phenomenal in my life. I have had a great time uh, preaching through it. And uh, this is, for me, truthfully, probably my favorite message from the whole series. And I'm just, I'm ready to, I'm ready to pump. I made a big deal about it last week. I do that sometimes and I always hate that because then if I'm like, if they hate now, your expectations like way up here. So even if I do like a good job, I didn't do a great job. You're going to be like, that wasn't as good as he said it was going to be. So I'll just start talking about how horrible the messages are. I'll lower the bar and that way just barely climb over it. And you're like, that was awesome. So uh, thank you guys so much for being here. If you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Chronicles. We're going to hang out there in uh, just a minute. In uh, 2 Chronicles 17, hang out there just for a minute. And I, I want to let you know something about this message. is because all the other ones have been very, very clearly uh, marriage, you know, relationship, sex, intimacy, love, trust uh, messages. And I want to kind of transition to end the series um, with, with a, a, a few what I'm calling fatal actions or fatal habits and, and replace them um, with, with godly, powerful habits and powerful actions. Because this is what I believe um, in marriage and relationships and, and in our homes. I believe that, as we've said from day one in this series, is that God is the architect. He's the designer of marriage. And we've also said that God is the builder. He's the one that should be building up the marriage and that God should be the foundation that all the marriage and the home and the family is built on. So God's the architect, God's the foundation, God's the builder. I mean, he's designed it, he's built it, he should continually be building it up and he's the foundation. So God's just this whole thing. And in, 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 in us, though, we are the managers of the thing that God designed, that God builds and on the foundation. We're the ones managing that. And, and if one of the things that you have to kind of come to early on in your Christian walk or your faith in Christ is that you have to understand that we're, no, we're not owners in this life, whether that comes to our finances or that comes to our homes or that comes to our businesses or that comes to simply our time and our effort and our talent and our resources, that we are managers, that we're not owners, that we're managers, that, we're, that we've been given certain gifts. We've been given. Our kids are not something that we own. Our kids are something that God has given us to raise and to take care of and to shepherd over and to manage. And so I wanted to kind of end this whole series on that idea of managing the things that God gave us. Uh, and one of my favorite kings um, in the in the Old Testament is a man named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, he was just he was super awesome. He was he was a he was a brilliant brilliant mind. He was a warrior. Uh, he was just very strategic. And and there was some things that he did um, that is discussed in the Book of Kings and in the Book of Chronicles. Um, as soon as he rose to power. He was different than a lot of the other kings. David was a good king. Solomon was a good king. But then there was a few bad kings in between the two. And, and Jehoshaphat was a little bit different. When he kind of came up to power and he, he kind of took over and he became the king, he had a very distinct, intentional understanding that although he was the king, that he wasn't the king, that God was the king. And that he was the manager of this small piece of God's kingdom in Judah. And he understood that, that, that this was God's, that the people were God's, that the cities were God's, that the towns were God's, that, that Judah, the region, everything within Judah, it was God's. And he had been given the task of managing it, not owning it. And this was a huge thing. And so when, when Jehoshaphat kind of came to the forefront, there were a few things that he did right off the bat uh, that were just incredibly powerful principles, incredibly powerful habits. And I think that, that these things, that we can look into them and we can really, really learn what it is to be wise and how to manage our homes and our marriages and our families um, in, in some powerful ways that God instructs and we can learn from Jehoshaphat. So that's what I want to do. I want to go through this, this chapter really fast. I'm just going to read through it. We're going to read through it together. There's a few words, and they're going to be in yellow up here. If you've got your Bible open, if you've got your phone, just kind of highlight those words because we're going to come back to those as we go through this. But before we do that, I'm going to pray because I love prayer and we're going to pray. So here we go. Father God, 
I just want to thank you so much, Lord. I want to thank you for this message. I want to thank you for this series. I want to thank you uh, just for your wisdom, Father, the way that you have just taught us your word, God. I pray, Lord, that you just continue to pour into us, Father. Let this uh, message, as we finalize this series, God, let this just be a home run, God. Not for my glory, God. Not, not because, for the sake of the message, God, because this isn't my stuff, God. This is your stuff. This is your word. This is your wisdom. This was your, your intellect, your design, God. I pray, Lord, that, that uh, your spirit just speaks to us, God, just speaks through me, uh, to this morning, Father, just let your spirit guide us, open up our hearts and our minds to you in every way, shape, and form. Take firm control. God, let us feel your presence and leave here uh, just on fire for you, Father, in your holy and your precious name. Amen. So here we go. Let's just read through this really, really fast. Uh, this is Second Chronicles 17, starting with verse 1. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the bells but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom, and this is a huge sentence, the Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asheroth poles from Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, Micah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniel, Zebediah, Ashel, Simravoth, Genevoth, and Adjaniah, Tobiah, Tabajanah, and the priests, Elishamah, Jehoam. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord, and they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. I never knew why they just didn't stick with David and John, but whatever. So... And the fear of the Lord fell on the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,100 rams and 7,100 goats. And Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful, and he built forts and store cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah, and he also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. Okay, so this is what we're looking at is, is he came to power, and there was a few things that he just did right off the bat. There were a few things that, that from the moment he got up, and I'm telling you, these are things that are incredible to his long reign. These are things that are incredible and, and play a huge part in who he is and the respect that he got. And I just want you to understand the kind of the end result because we, we get kind of an end result. There was so much blessing on him and so much favor and there was so much great things going on in the Judah and in his life that the enemies were not only afraid, all right, but they came to suck up to Jehoshaphat. All right, that's how things, how good things were for the majority of the time. Joseph, I mean, you think about your enemies, not only not attacking you, but then just every six months or so, just kind of bringing you, you know, some fattened camels and some, you know, whatever was cool in that day and just kind of put it before you and was like, hey, just want to make sure we're still friends. Don't kill us all. So it was just, there was a huge amount of success in Judah um, under the reign of Jehoshaphat. And I believe it's a huge part of some of these principles. So I just want to look through some of these things and just see some of the wisdom that he put into place. And so hopefully that we can take some of these things as we manage our marriage and we manage our homes and we manage our families, that we can make sure that these habits and these principles exist in our home and in our lives. So let's just look back 
at the first one. He said, Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. So this is the first thing he steps up. This is the first thing that he did. He steps up, and it's not like Judah was unprotected. It wasn't like they didn't have soldiers. It wasn't like they didn't have forts. It wasn't like they were just sitting there completely void and, and open to attack from all the enemies. But what thing that he did is as soon as his father died, as soon as Jehoshaphat came up to reign, he had a conversation amongst themselves, amongst the leadership, and they decided two things. And these are two very incredibly important things that a lot of people, they find out way too late. But one of the, he stood up and he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at it and we're going to find and we're going to decide what is most valuable to us and then we're going to protect that thing. So he looked around Judah and he looked around town and he said, this is the things. We're going to decide what is most valuable to us and we're going to protect it. And the one, and then the decide was valuable to us, and we're going to protect it. And then the second thing that he did was, I don't know why I just did that. I really don't. I turned around. I was so excited about the point. I've just been pumped about it. So he said, we're going to come up. And this is the thing that I want you to understand about Jehoshaphat, is that it said that he went and he fortified cities, meaning there were already cities that were fortified. There were already cities with things in it. And he sent more soldiers into it because he understood two principles, what was valuable, and then he understood the greatest threat against the thing that was most valuable to him. Does that make sense? Because at this time period, Israel was an enemy of Judah. Israel was in an evil place, and they were coming against them. They were surrounded by Arabs. They were surrounded uh, by other religions. They were surrounded by other armies. And, and th there was a few key cities in the place where you had to be very, very aware of the things that were at risking the things that were most valuable to him. And to me, this is one of the things that we never do. We never truly understand. We figure it out 10 years later. A lot of times we'll figure it out, you know, when, as we're signing divorce papers. A lot of times we'll figure it out as the marriage is going down and the family's blowing up and everything's going bad. Well, we figure out and we'll go back and we'll say, you know what? There were some things that were really valuable to us that we didn't protect. There were some things that were really valuable. There were some things that were really important to us. There were some things that were, that were, that were life-altering that we left open to the enemy and we left unprotected. And the, one of the things that I've really thought about in my life over the last year, last year, you guys remember uh, the phase series that we did at the beginning of the year? Uh, that whole series came from just an amazing time of God with me last year where I just had a moment where God revealed to me one of the things that was most valuable to me. And I sat down with Courtney and I said, Courtney, these are the things that are most valuable. I said, let's have this conversation. What is most valuable to us? And at that time period, we decided... What was most valuable to us was time with each other and time with my cute, fat little baby. All right? That was what was most important to us. That was what was most valuable to us. And so we decided, and that was what we decided, listen, this is what's most valuable. Time with each other and time with Aubrey. This is what's most valuable. And so we put everything in our time, everything that we could, from our time, our effort, our resources, uh, from our money, from opportunities to jobs, to the church even, to different responsibilities. And we said, this is the thing that's most valuable to us. And so this is the thing that we're going to protect. And we became very aware of the things that threatened that thing that was most valuable to us. Does that make sense? But here's the reason why so many times, and this was one of the first times Courtney and I, we've been married for four years. Man, I hope that's right. We've been married for about four years. All right, we've known each other for like seven or eight or nine, just in case I'm wrong. And we, I mean, but we have never sat down with one another ever. And we said, Courtney, what are the things that are important to you? What are the things that are valuable to you? What are the things that you hold up here? What are the non-negotiables for you? What are the things that you need to feel safe? What are the things that you need to feel good? What are the things that are me? What is important to me? What do I value? What are the most valuable things that I need in my life, that I need in my marriage, that we need in our home, that we need to protect from the outside world? What are those things? 
See, the majority of people, we don't ever have those conversations. The majority of people, we don't sit down and we don't discuss and we don't talk about the things that are valuable. And we usually learn to figure out what was valuable to our wife because they're listed down the divorce papers of why she's leaving. Right? Oh, that was valuable to her. That's, that was valuable to her. Being nice to her, that was valuable to her. I should probably have redone that differently. So, I mean, but there's this thing we don't ever talk anymore. I was watching this documentary, all right, and, and it was on Navy SEALs and snipers, and it was really awesome, and it was really violent, and it was really cool, and I loved it. And they were interviewing these Navy SEALs, and they asked them, and, and this one, something that just kind of blew my mind, and I was sitting there listening, as they asked them, they said, what is the most dangerous situation you can get yourself into? What is the most dangerous, what is the thing, if you had to pick out of everything to pick, what situation would you hope that your team and you are never involved in? And I'm sitting there, and in my mind, because I, I feel like I could be a Navy SEAL, all right, let's just, let's just be honest, right? If, you, if you're not, you can always think that you could. That's why I always love like, people that sit in the stands at football games. I could be the coach. No, you couldn't. You're a moron. You don't know anything about it. He's a genius, and you're not. I, I love that, but we all do this, right? I could do, I could do that better. Than, I could, I could, there was 50,000 people when Cam Newton didn't go for the fumble. Oh, I would have gone for the fumble. No, you wouldn't, all right? You couldn't get off the couch in time, all right? It's like, that's the thing is that we just, we kind of have this mentality of like, we could, we could do it. So I'm sitting here, I'm watching the Navy SEALs, and I'm just going through my mind. I'm like, well, running out of ammo would probably be a big one for me, all right? If, I, if I'm going into battle or, or, or you know, uh, I was thinking if I'm getting surrounded and outnumbered, that was something that I would probably, you know, kind of just wet myself and run away really quickly if I was surrounded by the enemy and I feel like I'm going to be dead in the next 10 minutes. And, and I was just kind of going through in my mind really fast, like, here's some things that would be super dangerous for me. And unanimously, almost at the same time, do you know what their answer was? No comms. That's what they said. No comms. And, and, I, and, and being a Navy SEAL, I knew exactly what that meant. I had no idea. That means communication. That means no communication. And I was sitting there, I was thinking about that, and I, and I was just listening to them talking. They said, they said, we can run, and they even talked about, we can, we can run out of ammo, man. We can, we can get separated, but as long as we can communicate with each other, we're good to go. As long as we know, as long as home knows where we are, as long as we can feel, uh, for meetup points, as long as we can know what direction each other's going, as long as we know what door's about to get kicked in, as long as we know uh, what everybody's doing, how everybody's doing, as long as we have comms in our life and we have communication, then we know that we're good and we can work around anything else as long as we are together. They said there's not anything that we can't face. We've been trained to face every single thing that comes up. We've been trained to do it together. And they said comms, communication is the most important thing. And here's the problem. This is one of the most foundational, fatal habits of all relationships and all marriages, all, all friendships, all, everything, every type of thing where one person and another poison, poison, person join together, there is just this absolute definite need of communication, but we don't communicate, right? We talk about all the stuff that doesn't matter, and we talk about what we watched on TV, and we'll dissect The Bachelor for three and a half hours. True story, all right? But, but we will not sit down and have serious heart-to-heart, head-to-head conversations about the things that are most valuable, about the things that we're struggling with, about the things that we're dealing with, or the, or the girl is sitting there talking, and you're just like, mm-hmm. And you have no idea what she's saying, and you just want to try to fix everything, or the guy's talking, and the girl's always, you know, just kind of doing that. But we never just sit down and have genuine conversations about the things that are most valuable to us. And so when we start to structure our life, and we start to set aside our finances, and we start to say yes to jobs and no to jobs, and take promotions, turn down promotions, and, and we start to make all these decisions, 
We don't know what's valuable, so we don't know how to protect it. So you don't know what's a risk and what isn't. Because for me and Courtney right now, time is the most valuable thing. And because I know that time with her and time with Aubrey is the most valuable thing, I am well aware of things that are risks. One of the things that I love almost more than life itself, and I wish that I was a lot taller and maybe not as white, is basketball. I love playing basketball. And I've had two really cool opportunities to play basketball locally in a little tournament, a little team. And, and there was a part of me that was just like, you can do it, Michael Jordan. Like this, the internal mic was just coming out of me. And I was just like, I want to do it. But I know in my heart and I know in my mind, even as much as I loved it and as good as an opportunity, and it, oh, we only practice once a week. The problem with Jordan playing basketball is that they may practice once a week, but I'll be out running drills at 5.30 in the morning and like by myself, coaching and playing. By my, I just get addicted and super competitive, and everybody knows that about me. And, like, and so I knew in my heart and my mind that this, that, that this was a major risk, and so I didn't even entertain it. Why? Because I knew what was valuable. I'd set myself up to protect it, and because I knew what was valuable, I knew what stood as a risk to it. And that was one of the things that Jehoshaphat did up front when he said, God, this is your kingdom. This is the thing that I'm managing. And so he recognized quickly, what are the most valuable things to us? What are the most valuable things to me? And because he knew what was the most valuable thing, he knew how to protect it, and he knew the greatest risks against it. And those are the things that you have to sit down. I mean, when is the last time that you sat down with your spouse or you sat down with your family and you had a genuine, real conversation about what is most valuable to you. When's the last time you sat down over dinner and you sat down uh, in the car and you, and you had a genuine conversation about how valuable your relationship with God is to your family? Because there's a lot of times we don't know, we, we, we go to church and we say that God's valuable, but then every single decision that we make in our life would say differently. Because we'll choose every other thing in this life over our time with God and over our relationship with God. I mean, when's the last time you sat down and you said outright, truthfully, truthfully, man, these kids and the way that we raise these kids, these are going to be the thing that is most valuable to us. All right, and that affects things, right? You get the job offer of a lifetime, and it looks good, and it's more money, but it's going to suck you out of your home. And it's going to give every ounce of your life, every ounce of your energy, every ounce of your time, for a $20,000 raise or a $30,000 raise, and after it's over, your children resent you, and they don't want to be around you, right? Because in the heat of the moment, you did not look at what was most valuable. You didn't know that that will, and you, this job, and we justify, well, this job is good, and this promotion is good, and I'll be able to make more money, and I'll be able to provide more, and it's, and it's, it's crap. But when you know truly, I have on paper and intentional about the things that are most valuable to you, you know how to protect them and you know how to watch out for the risks involved. This is a huge, huge thing. So you need to create calm points in your life or communication points in your life where you just sit down. Just a show of hands. I'm going to play this game because I read some statistics and I, I thought that it was unique and I'm praying to God that they were wrong. So we're going to play a game. Here we go. You ready? If you are married and no kids, and you have been on more than two dates, that means by yourself with the one that you love, married, no kids, by yourself in the last 30 days, just raise your hand. One, two, three, okay, four, all right. I'm not going to make you do the other way around, because that would be, because the, the wife would just be All right, if you're married with kids and you've been on a date, just you and her, 
or her and him. Men and women are equal. More than twice in the last 30 days, raise your hand. One. They're right. The stats are right. They said 4%, 4% of parents with teenagers have more than two dates every six months. Think about that. I said 4%, I'm, I'm going to say it right this time, 4% of parents with teenagers have more than two dates every six months. Only 4%. 4%. I want you to think about that. That means that the vast majority of husband and wives, especially with kids, don't even go on dates with one another anymore. So I know that if I were to ask you the first time, do you value time with each other, everybody in here with half a brain would raise your hand. Yeah, I value. I value her. Right? But what you actually do and what you actually experience would say that you don't value her. You don't value time with her. You don't value time with him. You don't value time with each other. You say it, but you don't truly value it because there's something else that's taking your time, something else that's taking your effort, something else that's taking your energy. I would truly encourage you to set up calm points in your life weekly. It might not be a Taj Mahal date. I think that every single couple, as soon as you leave church on Sunday morning, whether it's on the ride home or for lunch, should have a 10 to 15 minute communication point right then to simply discuss what the Lord said or taught or did them in the service. That's one good habit to have. Ours kind of goes like this. I always come home and say, Courtney, that message was horrible, wasn't it? She goes, no, it wasn't horrible. Thank you. No, she, if it's good, she'll tell me it's good. And if it's not, she'll tell me it's not. <laughs> but have a date night. Man, there's no reason you couldn't go on a date at least once every two weeks if you really wanted to. I've learned this about life. You will do the things that you truly want to do the most. I don't have time. You will have time for the things that you truly want to do the most. All right? Create calm points in your life. Go on dates. Have a Monday night or a Friday night or one morning or something where you just get coffee and you just sit down at the table and you just talk about your week and you talk about what's valuable and you just evaluate your life. Create these calm points in your life. That makes sense. Let's go on. Number two. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the bells, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. This one is absolutely massive. He did not consult. They said the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him because he followed the ways of David and he did not consult the bells and he did not follow the practices of Israel. What that means is he did not reach out to, take advice from, get consultation from the wisdom of this world and the godless culture that surrounds us. He did not take the standards of his life and place what was important and place the standards on his life because of the way that the culture does it or because of the way that Israel did it or because of the way that the other religions did it. What he did was is he stood up as king, and I really believe this with all my heart. He stood up as king, and he grew up under his father, and he saw the way his father did some things, Asa, and he saw the way that Israel was doing some things, and he saw the way that these, this other culture over here was doing it. He saw the way, and he said, you know what? I'm looking into those cultures, and I'm not seeing anything good, so why on earth would I follow after those things? 
I really believe that with all my heart because this is one of the first things that he was thinking about this ahead of time. I think that he looked over in Israel as he was coming up as the king's son. He was looking over in the culture. He was looking over at what was normal. And he was saying, you know what? If that's what normal in Israel, I don't want to do what Israel's doing. If that's what's normal over there in that culture, I don't want to do what that culture's doing. If that's what's normal, I don't want to do it. And for me, when I look at my wife and I look at my child and I look into the culture, I don't want my family to have anything to do with that culture. When I over and I look at what's normal and I look at the hurt and I look at the pain and I look at the suffering, I look at the divorce rates and I look at the statistics and I look at all that and I look at the debt and I look at the amount of financial stress that creeps into most families because you try to live above your means and you try to buy things you can't afford and get things that you don't even need and it creates a massive amount of stress on your life and I don't want to go through that. So I look into the culture, I look into what the world's doing, and I see what is normal, and I don't want anything to do with what's normal. So I'm going to follow after something different. Does that make sense? That's what he did, and I, and I call it, this is something I just really put in my life, and it might not make sense to you, it makes a lot of sense to me, so welcome to my brain. But I've created a thing I call the pause button, because when I was a kid, I did not have a pause button. I was, a very, I was great at impulse reactions. All right? Somebody come up and say one negative thing to me, I just punch them in the face without even thinking about it. Right? I just was an impulse. That's what I did. If there was something that I wanted, I bought it. If there was something that I wanted to do, I did it. And there was very rarely, and I, I mean, I was, and I thought I was super smart, and I thought I was super wise, but I was stupid, and I was dumb. Right? And so I've created something in my life. I've created a pause button. Here's what a pause button does. A pause button will create space between whatever situation you're dealing with and your response to that situation. I mean, well, that's something as simple as somebody, your boss walking in and, and making you mad from the moment you walked in, create space, pause button. Or that's something as, as big as somebody offering you a job or as big as a chance to move or buy a new house or something huge. You just create a pause button in your life. And for most of us, many of us, we don't have any pause buttons. And we don't create space between the situation or the opportunity or the words that were said or the things that come against us. We don't create any space between that and the way that we respond to them. And more important than just simply creating a space between the situation and the way that you respond, it's what you fill that space with. Because if you fill that space and then you call Dr. Phil or you get on Oprah or you look in the local newspaper, you just do what's normal, at the end of the day, you're just, you're creating some space, but you're not doing anything different. You create space and you fill that space with the wisdom of God. And you look at, and I'm going to tell you something, this is something, especially for people, if you haven't been walking with Christ long, and you haven't been following Jesus long, and, and, and this is kind of a new thing to you, I want to teach you something. This is the most valuable thing that you could learn today, I promise you. Every single opportunity, every single decision that is made, every single choice that comes up, every single offer from a job, every single anything that comes up, any fight, any good thing, any bad thing, create space between that and your response, and fill that response with God's word. There is nothing that you will come against. There's nothing that you will deal with. There's no kind of financial thing. There's no kind of intimacy in the marriage thing, sex thing. There is nothing that is going to come up in your life that this book has not covered in detail. And the greatest thing that you could ever do is when you get into these situations and you get into these circumstances is create space and then see what God says about it. Search out his wisdom. Search out what he says to do. Search out what's important to him. Search out his ways and then apply those things to your life. Because for far too long, people will, they, they call themselves Christians and they believe in God and they've got this thing and they come to church. But when it comes to actually following through and doing the things that God says to do, they don't do them because they don't know because this book isn't a part of your life. Does that make sense? And I always have to ask myself, why do you trust and believe in something that you really don't know anything about? Do you understand that following Christ is a lifelong, life-committed, heaven and hell, death and life conversation? 
And you, most of us, we don't even know what we believe, let alone knowing the ways of God that exist within Scripture. And so much of the time and the way that we handle our finances and the way that we handle our marriages and the way that we raise our kids and we think we're doing it, but we're doing it good compared to the standards of society in a godless culture. And we have no idea that there's 10,000 better ways to do it that exist in this book, but we won't take 10 minutes to read it and absorb it and apply it, right? But we'll read 50 Shades of Grey 54 times, all right? We'll watch TV until we can't even see straight. I will listen to everything that comes on the radio and jam out to some music. My favorite's 90s alternate rock, Matchbox 20, closing time, stuff like that. I love it. We'll fill our hearts and our minds with all of this other junk, and we will never consume the Word of God and fill that space in our life between the things that happens and the way that we respond with the ways of God. Jehoshaphat said from day one, I'm not going to do the things the way that Israel did it. I'm not going to do the things the way that the other cultures did it. I'm going to do things the way my father, my great-grandfather David did it. And I'm going to follow the ways of the Lord. And this book was incredibly important to him. And he filled every single situation. And we'll read more and you'll see every single situation. There was a space between the situation and his response filled primarily with the word of God. And when he sought advice and he sought counsel, it was from prophets and priests and teachers of the Word of God. You don't have to raise your hand, but when was the last time, truthfully, not the last time you called somebody, not the last time you, you, you had a conversation with a person, when was the last time you were dealing with a situation or having to make a decision that you poured over the Word of God, studied the Word of God, got down in prayer, to seek the ways of the Lord in that situation. Because if you're a genuine follower and believer of Christ and you're making decisions and making choices and going directions without seeking out the wisdom of God, by definition, you've declared yourself a fool by knowing what is more important, knowing what is better, and choosing another thing. For the record, I didn't call you a fool. You called yourself a fool. You declared yourself a fool. That's what Solomon says. He goes, you make yourself a fool when you know what is best and you choose something different. I'm telling you. He goes on the third thing. The Lord established the kingdom under his control. I just love that. The Lord established the kingdom under his control. And all of Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord and furthermore, you need to underline that, circle it, star it, write it on your face. He removed the high places and the Ashroth poles from Judah. His heart was devoted to the Lord, but furthermore, he did something about it. Right? Because I'm going to tell you something, and I'm, 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 I'm going to make some of you mad. All right? There's a lot of people in this room, I believe that you believe in God. I believe that you love God. I believe that you genuinely know the Lord. I believe that in your heart and in your mind, you are committed to the ways of God. I believe that you love your wife. I believe that internally you want to do the right things. But there's no furthermore in your life. Meaning that all that awesome stuff that is going on in your heart and your mind, you just don't do anything about it. Right? Because he says, listen, he was committed, he was devoted all right, he sought the ways of the Lord. In his heart, he was devoted to the ways of the Lord. And on top of that, he did something about it. 
right? And this is one of the most fatal habits in, in life, in marriage, in families, and that is what I call the intention gap. Right, the intention gap. There are things in your heart and things in your mind. I'm telling you, we got a bunch of geniuses in the room. You come up with good ideas, you just don't do anything about them. All right? Joseph says all the time, you know, Joseph will come up, he'll come up with a great idea. And I'm like, you know what? I was thinking about that. That was a good idea, man. Now it's my idea and I'm going to do it. All right? Because there's a lot of times, there's a lot of times when, when you have an idea or you have a thought or you have a thing and you'd never make it a reality because you never do anything about it. All right? There's so many times at the end of every year, I do this massive evaluation of my life. And at the end of the year, I'm going, man, you know what? God gave me so many good ideas. God placed so many things in my heart. God told me to do this. God led me to do this. And I have a long list of the things that I know in my heart God called me to do, that I know in my heart God intended for me to do, but I never did them. And it's not because he didn't tell me. It wasn't because I didn't know it. It wasn't because I didn't think of it. It was simply because there was an attention gap between the things that I thought about doing and the things that I actually did. Right? And there's a lot of fathers in here that says, you know what, I'm gonna, I have all intentions, I have all desire to raise my family in the eyes of God. You just don't do it. I have all intentions of being there for my family, but you just don't do it. I have all intentions of leading a Bible study in my home, but you just don't do it. I have all intentions of volunteering and doing something for the Lord this year, but you just don't do it. I have all intentions of having that hard conversation with my wife or having that hard conversation with my, my husband and having my hard conversation with these kids and, and getting some of this sin out of our life and getting some of this foolishness out of our life and ending some of this stuff in our marriage, but you just don't do it. It's not that you didn't know you weren't supposed to. It wasn't that you didn't really want to. It wasn't that you weren't devoted or that you weren't committed. It was just that there was a massive gap between the things that you intended to do and the things that you actually did. And at the bottom of that gap rests a lot of failed marriages and broken homes. Because I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest fears of my life, truthfully, is 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, I will look back over my life and see one massive intention gap of the things that the Lord laid in my heart and the things that I actually did. And there's no excuses at that point. And I hear people all the time say, you know what, I just feel like the Lord's not laying anything on my heart to do. The Lord's just not giving me ideas. It's because he already did and you're not doing anything about it. God's just not blessing me financially. It's because he put in your heart to honor him with your finances and you're still not tithing. You're still living above your means. You're still not following the wisdom of God. And there is no way, even though he loves you, even though he cares about you, he will never bless you financially and give you more money to screw up because you didn't do what he told you to do to begin with. People all the time talking about, I need more to do. I need more purpose. I need more this. I need more that. We've got about 100 opportunities to volunteer in this church. Why don't you get your butt out of the seat, do something about it with the talents and the gifts he's already given you, and then when you're using that, ask God to come back and give you some more, and he probably will. All right? Do you love that guy who never got his butt up off the bench, but he's always like, I could have played good. I could have did it. Get your butt to practice, get developed, and then you'll get an opportunity to do something with it. Intention gap is one of the most deadliest things in life, in marriages, in home. I really, really, really intended to get her some flowers. I just never did. The next guy probably will. I really, really intended, I really intended not to play 47 sports and hobbies this year and spend more time with her. The next guy probably will. There is a massive gap in our lives between what we know that we should do, the things that the Lord lays in our hearts, 
and the things that we actually do. And it's in this gap we'll rest most of our failures and most of our regrets. And it's not because you didn't know. And it's not because you didn't have a good heart. And it's not because you weren't committed. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because it's just simply because you didn't do it. And I'm telling you, you got to change this. If the Lord lays something in your heart, man, you just do it. And if you fell, it's God's fault. I'm serious. People ask me all the time, well, why, why do you have so much faith? I don't have any faith. I just do the thing that God tells me to do. And if it flops, it's God's fault. Nine times out of ten, it doesn't flop, though. Because God's not really in the business of failing. He's in the business of victory and blessing and favor and growth and amazingness. Does that make sense? He goes on. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hel, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Nathaniel, Micah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites. All those guys were there. They taught throughout Judah. Taking, this is important. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah, and they taught the people. I want you to look up here. In the third year. In the third year. So he shows up three years earlier with a plan. He shows up three years earlier, and he's got a devotion and a commitment to the Lord. He shows up three years earlier with a lot of intentions. He throws up three years earlier, and he knows that the Lord is going to be the Lord of Judah. He knows that we are going to teach the people the word of God. We are going to disciple the people. Everybody will know we are going to follow in the ways of the Lord. And three years later, he's not done getting it done. So, and this is the thing, and I'm going to tell you something. I want you all to listen to me because this is something. And I, I might not be preaching to anybody in this room but me. In this country especially, in our culture, especially my generation, the generation under me, we are addicted to overnighters. Overnights. And you know what an, over, you know what an overnighter is, right? If you, you call this number, we'll send you some pills, and overnight you can be successful. Right? You know what? If you call us, we're going to send you this contraption. You just sit in it, and it electrifies you, and it jiggles all your fat away. <laughs> overnight. These are real things on TV. <laughs> Took you 20 years and 10,000 donuts to create all that fat, but you're just going to jiggle it off overnight, right? You don't want to study. You just want to buy a pill that will give you some, some intelligence. The fa- you know the fastest growing pharmaceutical drug right now, to both of number one and number two, are to make you smarter, the smart ones, the ones making billion dollars, all of us stupid people, that were like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to have to study. I'm just going to take that pill and ace the test. I'm just going to buy that thing, learn how to speak French. You know, the dude, I'm telling you, my entire generation, dude, because we got everything at our fingertips, right? You know, did, no lie. The other day, we, there were some things that we had to buy. There was something that was really good, and I really wanted it, but it was going to take three days to get here. There was another thing that wasn't as good. I knew it wasn't as good, but it was going to be here overnight. Guess which one I picked? The one that's going to be here overnight. Because three days is just too long. I'm telling you, I'd send somebody a text, I don't get a response in 37 seconds. I'm like, the heck are they doing? <laughs> Light turns yellow. Soon as that thing hits green, dude, I'm like honking the horn at them. I'm like, did you not see that? I'm watching the other light, right? It's, as soon as it turns yellow, then our light's going to be green. And I'm genuinely angry at their stupidity for not watching it. If you would just watch this other light, you could gain 0.1 nanoseconds of time in your life and speed off. 
All right, dude, we are addicted to overnights. And it's like, if we can't do it overnight, we want to do it. I, I love and working out. And I, working out is just something I, I need because if I don't want, I just, it's like my stress release. Two, I get chubby, like super chubby. And so I've got to work out at something that's important to me. And here's the thing, dude. I am, I get, it almost annoys me. Somebody come in, they join, they join the gym, they come up and they're like, yeah, I'm just not really seeing any results. Well, when did you join? Last week. I'm not even going to finish this conversation with you. Like, your stupidity is offensive to me. Like, what are you talking about, man? Yeah, I've been, I did curls twice last week. I don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, but that's just, that's just how we think. We've just been conditioned to be addicted to overnights. And listen, and that's why most of us are not going to be a part of anything amazing in this life. That's why most of us, you're not going to be, you're going to come in on the tail end of things. You'll hang around. You, you, your story will be, I used to be a part of that thing that is amazing, but you never hold on to it. And you never stay committed to it. Anything worth having in this life is going to take time to get it. Right? Three years later, three years later, he's still not done. He said the word of God is going to be important to this town, to this city, to this country, to Judah, to these people. Three years later, he was still taking teachers and priests and leaders with the word of God and discipling and teaching all the towns. And what I find is interesting is that those towns, that word in Hebrew for town, are the small outskirt towns is what it is. So it means that he started in the city and he just slowly worked his way out, discipling and teaching and raising up leaders under the ways of God. And see, here's the thing that I want you to understand about your life. I believe that God has an amazing purpose for every single person in this room. I believe that the Lord is going to do amazing things through so many different people in this church. And I believe as a church, we are going to experience some crazy, awesome, absolutely earth-shattering, earth-shaking things over the next 25 years. My challenge to you is who's going to still be here with me 25 years from now? Or the first time something goes up, you're going to hop down the road. The first time I preach a bad series, you're going to hop down. The first time I say something that offends you, the, the first time you get your feelings hurt, the first time you just get bored and you want to move on to the next thing, right? If you're going to be one of those people, you're just going to go from thing to 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 thing. And that's usually, and people think it's funny, we're joking around about it, but why do you think people start hopping from marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage? Because it's in your DNA. I heard something, a coach screamed at me really close to my face many times in high school. He said, you quit the first day, you're going to quit the rest of your life. And I think it's true, man. I think that if, you, that if you get in this habit of not fighting the battles and not sticking with the things that the Lord puts in your heart, you will not experience the greatness that he has planned for you, period. The Lord does not move overnight. He moves over time. That's just the way that he does it. I'm telling you, it's just the way that he does it. Next thing. Fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms. I'll just assume that he was so awestruck by the message and not playing Candy Crush like I would probably be doing. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands surrounding Judah so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,100 rams and 7,100 goats. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful 
He built forts in the store cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah. He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. I want you to understand something about this. This is the thing right here that set Jehoshaphat apart from so many other kings, and not just kings of Judah and kings of Israel, but so many other kings in general. He had an incredible focus on the things that were most important and most valuable to him. He was one of the only kings that did not try to go outside his borders and take something that he didn't need to go take, simply for the glory of it. See, he realized early on, and early on as king, he decided the things that were most valuable. And he decided what the Lord called him to do. And he committed his life to protecting those things and building those things up rather than moving on and on and on and on. And here's the thing. He became more and more powerful, but he never stopped building forts and store cities in Judah. He had an excess. And if you read on, it's not up here, but if you read on right after this scripture, it talks about the hundreds and the thousands of warriors that he had at his disposal. He could have taken over any other nation that was surrounding him. He could have destroyed Israel. He could have gone south. He could have gone and done anything that he wanted to do. He could have gone and warred, and he could have gone and conquered, and he could have gone and sought out his own glory to expand his own kingdom, but he didn't do that because he knew that's not what the Lord wanted him to do. So he took every ounce of his time, every ounce of his effort, and every ounce of his resources, and he continued to make what was important to him and what was valuable to him strong, and he built that up so that no man could take it, and no man did in his lifetime. And here's the thing that I want you to understand. When it comes to the things that are valuable, there's no such thing as too strong. There's no such thing as too strong. I'm telling you right now, there will never be, Taylor, you can go ahead and come up here. There will never be anything in your life more important than your relationship with God, more important than your relationship with your spouse, your family, and your kids, period. And there will never come a time in your life when those two things and the way that they're protected and the way that they're handled, they'll, they'll never become too strong. Your relationship with the Lord will never be too strong. Your relationship with your wife will, it will never be too strong. Your relationship with your husband, it will never be too strong. And see, a lot of times what we do is things kind of get good and things kind of get okay, and then we start trying to venture out and do things that God just didn't call us to do and, and conquer things that God just didn't call us to conquer and, and to explore things that God just didn't call us to explore. And what he really wanted you to do was spend 50 years of your life investing in this one thing, investing in your marriage, investing in your home, protecting it, taking it up a notch, pouring into it, building it up, there's no such thing as too strong. He never one time, and I'm going to tell you something. What was so beautiful about this was he didn't have to go out and worry about anybody else coming because he was so strong, nobody had the guts to attack him. There's no such thing as too strong. And, I, and I, I'm going to read you something because there's something that, that comes up in Jehoshaphat's life later. And I want everybody, if you fell asleep during the message, I want you to wake up, I want you to listen to me. There's a situation that comes up in Jehoshaphat's life from hundreds and hundreds of miles away comes a great horde, a great army. Two nations combined together, and they were coming because they heard of how, how powerful Judah was, and they were going to come destroy it and take it. All right, this is, they're way, dist- I mean, regions away. And Jehoshaphat gets word that these, this great horde is what it calls it. It's on the way. And I want to show you something. I just want to read this real fast. I want to show you the way Jehoshaphat handles this. Because if you didn't hear anything else up to this point, I need, you to, I need you to listen. I need you to hear this. I'm going to read this. It's going to be a minute. After the Moabites and the Ammonites and with some of the Minuites came against Jehoshaphat for battle, 
Some men came, and this is in 20. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude and a great horde is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazamot Terah. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people and give it to forever the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built it up for you and then become a sanctuary in your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, if the sword comes upon us, if judgment comes upon us, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For in our affliction you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir and others whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by driving us out of your possession, which you have given us. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For this is the part I want you to hear. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Listen, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I'm going to tell you something. I want you all to listen to me. Everything we've kind of talked about up to this point is kind of in your realm of management. It's kind of in your realm of control. It's some things that you can do, some things that you can apply. But I'm going to tell you something. There are some things that will come against your home that are going to be greater than you. There are going to be attacks on your marriage and on your home and on your family and on your kids that are going to be outside of your realm of control. There's going to be things that you face economically and financially, and there's just nothing you're going to be able to do about it. There's going to be people in this world that are going to hurt your children, maybe not physically, but emotionally and spiritually. There's going to be situations that your wife or your husband deal with at work that's going to tear them down. It's going to hurt them. It's going to bring pain and suffering into their life, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's going to be things in this life that come against you like this great horde came against Jehoshaphat, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And you're going to want to do something about it, but there's nothing you can do about it. There's going to be seasons of life where things just get so difficult and things just get so stressful and things just get so bad that you just feel like there's no way out. Things are going to get so dark sometimes, all you're doing is just striving to see the light. And I think there's some marriages and probably some families and probably some kids and probably some situations and probably even in the room right now in this moment and in this morning as I'm going through that, you're sitting there going, oh, that's true because I'm living it. That's true because I'm going through it. That's true because I'm li That's true because she's almost out the door. That's true because he's almost out the door. That's true because we're about to sign up the divorce papers. That's true because my kids are freaking out. That's true because he's about to walk through. She's about to walk through hell. He just can't do it. I'm telling you right now. His response, Jehoshaphat, his response was absolutely life-changing for me. He comes down to God. He brings all the people of Israel together, proclaims a fast, kneels down at the house of the Lord, looks straight to heaven and says, I'm powerless against this. And he goes, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I'm telling you, in those situations, in those times when, when your marriage, when your family, it just gets so out of your hand. Because I'm telling you, there's some of you, I get this. Because I, I know that there's a, this people, this person exists in this room. 
where you are genuinely from the bottom of your heart trying and fighting for your marriage as hard as you can, doing everything in your power to bring your house under the ways of God and your spouse just isn't having it. I know that you live, I know that you exist in this room. And I know it just feels like a battle. I know it just seems like no matter how hard you try or how hard you fight, he's just never going to let it happen or she's just never going to let it happen. And here's the thing, you can't do anything about his heart. You can't do anything about her heart. All you can do is keep your eyes on God and just say in your heart and your mind, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And this is the Lord's response to Judah, to Jehoshaphat, and to the people of Israel. This is the Lord's response, and I think this is beautiful. It says, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. I'm going to tell you something right now. The greatest thing you can ever do, the greatest habit you can ever put in your life, the greatest action, the greatest, the greatest thing you could do as a man or a woman in your marriage and in your family is learn to hold the position of prayer in your life and start living a life where you watch the Lord bring salvation to your home. God said, the battle is not yours, it's mine. And here's the thing. The reason a lot of you guys are struggling is because you haven't given the battle to the Lord yet. I believe this with all my heart. You come at me and I will show you theologically and scripturally where this is an absolute fact, and absolute truth. The Lord will never fight a battle that you do not give him through prayer, period. See, there's a lot of you out here, you're trying to fight a battle meant for the gods and you can't do it because you're a mere man. You can't change the heart of a woman. You can't change the heart of a man. You can't change the heart of a child. The only thing that you can do is stand firm and hold the position of prayer. Believe and watch God change lives. Everybody asks us all the time, what's your strategy in church? How do you get so many people saved? I don't save anybody. We don't save nobody. But we do hold our position of prayer. And we stand firm and we watch the presence of God alter generations. And that's what you need in your life. More than any other thing I've ever preached about in my entire life, you need to put prayer at the center of your life, prayer at the center of your marriage, and learn to hold firm, stand firm, and hold that position, and watch God be God. Because when God shows up, there is no great multitude that can stand against him. God's been changing lives and winning victories for 10,000 years. God's never been defeated. God's never been conquered. God's never, anytime God set his face to something, set his hand to something, breathed on something, that thing went from dead to life. Like that's the way that works. God's not in the business of losing. He's in the business of winning. You want to become winners? You want to become victorious? Stop trying to fight the battle yourself and give it to God because he's the only one that can bring victory into your life. You need God. So I'm going to challenge you to do something this morning. I'm going to challenge you, whether you stay in your seats or you come up here to the front, I'm going to challenge you to find your family, find your spouse, find your husband, find your wife, hold their hands, and during this next song of worship, I'm going to challenge you to challenge each other to make prayer a massive part of your life because this will be the thing that separates you. And for many of you, this will be the thing that saves your marriage. 
and saves your family. You may not need it right now, but I promise you, you will. If you guys will stand with me. I pray, Lord God, right now that you will let your spirit and your presence and your power rest in this room, God. I pray, Lord, that you will consume the depths of our hearts, God, that you will consume, just set our hearts on fire for you, Father. I pray, Lord God, right now that you will let us know in the deepest part of who we are that the battle is not ours, but yours. And there's going to be so many times in life when things come against us and come against our home and our family and our marriages, and they're going to be bigger than we are. And we have to stand before you, God, with that heart of I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I pray, Lord, that we learn how to give you the battles so that our great king can give us victory. In your holy and your precious name.